0: On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Indra Lucero, a staff attorney at the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, a nonprofit organization that combines pro bono criminal defense and civil rights legal work, advocacy, and public education and organizing to ensure that no one is locked up, shamed, or denied constitutional or human rights because they have the capacity for pregnancy, are pregnant, or because of any outcome of pregnancy, including abortion, miscarriage, stillbirth, and birth. We speak with Indra today about the work their organization does to educate the public about the weaponization of motherhood and pregnancy, and how it supports those accused or criminalized for their pregnancy choices or outcomes. Welcome, Indra. Thank you. Glad to be here. I want to start with the work that your organization does. I gave a brief overview of all of the services that NAPW engages in, and I think we should start with actually just defining the term reproductive justice and reproductive rights and how NAPW views its role in that space.
1: Okay. Reproductive justice is a broader term than reproductive rights. Reproductive justice really came out of a... group of women of color in response to an overly narrow approach to uh, addressing reproductive issues that was undertaken primarily by white women. And because of the overly narrow approach, many women of color felt that the issues that they were experiencing in their daily lives related to reproduction were not being addressed. So that could include things like forced sterilizations or not being able to parent fully or parent their own kids. Um, So the term reproductive justice was developed to create a broader space, to create a broader umbrella, to address more issues. Um, In contrast, reproductive rights is really just a focus on rights, especially abortion rights. So um, a much more narrow focus, whereas reproductive justice would include Um, being able to have the conditions present to enact your rights, to leverage your rights, um, which can get into addressing things like economic justice, um, environmental justice. um, The idea that if, for example, the community in Flint who don't have access to clean water, um, that's, seen as a reproductive justice issue because, of course, it it directly impacts reproduction. It impacts people's kids. Um, So reproductive justice is much more broad. And I think you asked, too, what National Advocates for Pregnant Women's role is in that space. Since NAPW is not led by women of color, generally, um, we acknowledge that that's That's a space generally preferred to be led by women of color. But I think NAPW has definitely contributed to reproductive justice space by broadening the conversation, by addressing issues that people are facing that were not being addressed by the abortion rights movement.
0: Speaking of abortion, that's just one aspect of reproductive rights which has been co-opted as an act that is against life, so to speak, by those who call themselves, quote unquote, pro-lifers at the expense of the human rights of pregnant people. Um, so how do anti-abortion laws impact all pregnant people, not just those who want or need to end a pregnancy?
1: What we find is that the, sometimes it's exactly the anti-abortion Laws, But other times, it's the thinking that goes on behind the anti-abortion laws that lead to the criminalization of pregnant folks for outcomes related to their pregnancy, which sometimes is abortion, sometimes it's miscarriage, sometimes it's stillbirth. So, for example, in Alabama, there's been hundreds of cases that we've documented and others have documented where the chemical endangerment law is being applied to people who use substances during their pregnancy. The chemical endangerment law on its face isn't an anti-abortion law, but when applied to pregnant people who are using substances, it takes the idea that a fetus has certain rights and uses it to, to leverage this law against pregnant people. So that's one example of, of a place where abortion, anti-abortion thinking, anti-abortion laws are used against pregnant people for issues not related to abortion.
0: So there was an example of Marche Jones. Is that how I had to pronounce her name? Could you talk about that case?
1: Another example from Alabama, although we have examples from all over the country. Um, is a recent case of Marche Jones, who was pregnant and got into a fight. And in this fight, she ended up being shot in the stomach, thereby injuring her fetus. And she ended up being charged. So this can be kind of mind-blowing to people. But in fact, this is, this is true. These are the true facts. The person who was them, themselves shot, they were the victim of violence. They were then charged with manslaughter. And the thinking, the reasoning on the prosecutor's part was that this pregnant person never should have gotten involved in a fight because doing that would put her fetus at risk.
0: So it's similar to the law that you were talking about, the chemical endangerment law as well, because it's putting the blame on the pregnant person for any kind of negative outcome that happens to her fetus.
1: Yeah, exactly. Somehow, because we've expanded the notion, and and by we, I, I mean culturally, um, this is something that we've documented even over the past 30, 40 years, expanded this notion of the fetus and what the fetus can kind of expect in terms of rights, in terms of how the government will protect the fetus. That idea has led to charges like Marche Jones where the state or a prosecutor in the state says boy I don't like what this pregnant person chose. I, I think how this pregnant person chose to take care of their fetus was not okay and maybe even criminal. And and that thinking leads prosecutors across the country to come up with any anything creative ways. We've had cases where people were charged with concealing a birth, which is a criminal charge, or um, mistreatment of a corpse. Um, So what we've noticed is that it's not so much that there are laws that are being created specifically to criminalize outcomes of pregnancy, but that prosecutors are willing to creatively use laws that, that were never intended to be used in the context of pregnancy.
0: And what do you think is the reasoning behind this wave? why they're willing to do that, to exploit existing laws to I think, hurt women.
1: I think the reasoning is a, a disproportionate regard for the fetus. And it's just sort of a, a matter of, of science that you can't totally take the pregnant person out of the equation. <laughs> but the more that you change the relationship between the pregnant person and the fetus, it impacts then how the pregnant person is treated. This happens even in medical care. In the United States, maternal mortality has been on the rise, actually, which is is unique across the world. In most countries, maternal mortality has been on the decline. And some of the thinking behind why that's happening is that there's been too much attention on the health of the fetus and not enough attention on the health and well-being of the pregnant person. Um, So even in the context of how we are providing health care, in this culture at this time, there's disproportionate attention to the fetus at the expense of the pregnant person. And that's then what we're seeing in terms of laws, this disproportionate attention to, oh, wait a minute, what about what about the condition of the fetus? What about the safety of the fetus? Without fully appreciating that the fetus is going to be better off if we take good care of the pregnant person. Um, and in, in many of our cases, we we are seeing people who who are struggling, who aren't, don't have access to good care, maybe because of substance use. And the response of many prosecutors is to, to punish. When, when you say a disproportionate amount
0: of attention or care given to the fetus, I would challenge that only because it indicates a genuine interest in the well-being of the fetus. And, I, and I'm wondering, knowing what we know about, quote-unquote, you know pro life anti abortion activists who don't really care about the life of the fetus once the unborn once the fetus is born right in terms of poverty issues and education etc is it really that or is it more potentially just wanting to control the pregnant body
1: yeah of course i think of course i'm taking at face value what the Um, you know, pro-life people say that their motive is. And certainly what they say and what people in healthcare say is that it's, they do care about that fetus. But I think you're right. There's certainly reason to doubt that, especially when you think about how helpful it is to a recently born human who was just a moment ago a fetus to have their parent, their primary caregiver, thrown in jail.
0: There was an example I understand recently in New York City of a pregnant woman, Renee Dre, who was shocking to me, but then not so surprising. Um, and I'm wondering if you could give us some background as to her case and what legal justification was used to by the doctors and healthcare providers to sort of influence her pregnancy uh, and birth decisions.
1: Yes. So Renate Dre was pregnant with her third and had two previous cesarean surgeries, which she found to be quite difficult. Her recovery took a long time. She felt like it it made it much harder to care for her new infants. So with this pregnancy, she was determined to try and have a vaginal birth. So she researched. She chose her provider in hospital based on their publicly reported C section rate and ended up going with Staten Island University Hospital because they had a lower cesarean surgery rate, and she thought that would increase her chances of being able to give birth vaginally. So she had expressed this throughout her pregnancy to her providers um, who generally suggested they'd prefer that she have a cesarean surgery, but she was undeterred, partly because she knew that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists had just the year before released a recommendation that said, if you have had two prior cesarean surgeries, a vaginal birth would be a reasonable choice. Not for everyone, but generally it would be possible. Um, So she knew, despite what her providers were saying, that really it could be possible for her, and she wanted to see that happen. So she goes into birth, she goes into the hospital, she goes into labor, she goes into the hospital. And during her time in the hospital, she's pressured, she's told, you're not going to do it, you can't do this, give up, just let us do the surgery. And she continues to say no until... Her provider talks to the hospital attorney, talks to his boss, and they decide collectively, well, she is not agreeing to the cesarean surgery, but we really think it's the right thing to do, so we're going to override her refusal. Unlike many people who experience this kind of pressure and coercion, they actually noted this in her chart. They wrote it right there in the chart. The woman has decisional capacity. We have decided to override her. To desire to refuse. And sure enough, they told her, we're overriding your refusal. They rolled her into the operating room and they performed the cesarean surgery on her. In the process, injuring her bladder, which required additional time in the operating room so she didn't even get to see her new infant for like eight hours after the baby was born. So following that traumatic experience, she. Took some time, of course, just being postpartum in itself is a process, especially after a traumatic experience. A couple years later, she started to search for an attorney because she felt like this was not right, what happened to her. She had a hard time finding somebody, but eventually did find someone who was willing to bring a case. And so she, she filed about two and a half years after giving birth a medical malpractice case. Now, the legal justification that the hospital and doctors used in order to override her decision really is, is in debate. What, what justification did they use? Was it legal? Um, but certainly the rationale that they used was that they had a duty to protect the fetus, that they thought that the surgery was going to be better for the fetus, and so they felt like that duty to the fetus was kind of greater than their duty to the pregnant person. And that that was the thinking. Has that case gone through the court system? Has there been a decision? There has not been a decision. It's still underway, and it's been eight years. Um, How is that possible for this? So this is in... Not
0: federal court, state court. And it
1: takes literally eight years? Yes, yes, especially for a medical malpractice that's not unusual. Um, And in this case, the hospital and doctors have been fighting it at every step. You know, at each each filing, they'll fight it. They'll make motions to dismiss. Um, Just recently, Renate Dre's lawyer added some claims to her initial filing, because at the time that she first filed the case, you know, it was just she was lucky to have found an attorney and to get in there under the statute of limitations. So it's taken some time to to really think about what other charges they could maybe make against the hospital and doctors, and they finally added some, which include consumer protection violation of New York state. discrimination laws, equal protection laws, and the judge earlier this year said, "Okay, yeah, we're going to we're going to include these new claims." And sure enough, the hospital and doctors made a motion to of course they opposed that originally and just recently they asked the judge to review her original decision. So, when, you know, when you fight it at each step, it can take years and years, which of course is partly why many people who have experienced similar mistreatment, don't even bring a legal case. Is that the reason why
0: it was hard for her to find an attorney? Because is it a contingency case? Is that how it works?
1: Yes, usually a case like this, you have to find an attorney who's willing to say, OK, in 8, in 10 years, if we get a judgment, then I'll get paid. Um, so that is certainly part of it. Because for that calculation, they want to feel like there's a high chance that they could pay, get paid and that there's a good amount of money to sort of spread around for the expenses that it costs for that long. That's definitely a factor for, for folks, It's just, especially in a case like this, where, yes, she was injured during the surgery, her her bladder was injured, but that the cost of that, just in terms of actual dollars, the cost of performing the surgery to repair her bladder is not a lot of money. The baby didn't have any injuries, so there's not a, a lot of money to recoup. So in these cases, you know, of course, the harm is not necessarily a financial harm. I mean, yes, it took recovery time, things like that, but it's really a psychological harm and it's really a a violation of human rights kind of thing. And there's not a lot of money attached to that kind of harm in our legal system.
0: Is there a possibility if Staten Island University Hospital had systematically engaged in these kinds of practices with other pregnant women uh, or pregnant people that the attorney for Renat Dre could then add on those cases?
1: Is that is that a possibility? A class action kind of lawsuit. Um, I mean theoretically it's a possibility, but pragmatically it's very challenging. It's hard then to have that group certified as a class and you have to find those people. I think I mean I I've been listening to people, tell their stories of these kinds of violations for over a decade. They do happen, but it's extremely rare to have the doctor's chart. She has refused, and I'm overriding her ref- refusal. So that I think it would be hard to find enough people with that piece of evidence to make for a class, which is why adding additional claims that kind of get to the, the deeper human rights issues, is one strategy. And then we're also doing advocacy um, beyond the litigation because litigation can often be kind of narrow and limited. So we're working with legislators to talk about creating new, new laws. Some legislators in New York are considering a pregnant patient's bill of rights. New York state already has a great patient's bill of rights. That actually, you know, includes the right to refuse. But because we know that pregnant folks continue to be violated in healthcare, some folks are thinking maybe we need to state it even more clearly for pregnant folks.
0: So I understand with Renat's case that the New York State Department of Health made a determination that her patient's Bill of Rights was violated. So what kind of teeth does a Bill of Rights have if... You know, once you're, you're, you have quote-unquote proof or affirmation that it's been violated, is it just the legal recourse? Exactly.
1: So unfortunately, the Patient Bill of Rights doesn't have a lot of teeth in that if you can prove that it's been violated in your case, you still can't use that in a lawsuit. So that was one of the decisions made in Renat Drey's case. Of course, she, she argued we have this patient bill of rights. It says I have the right to refuse. I wasn't able to in this case. And the judge just threw that out and said that may be, but the patient bill of rights doesn't let individuals bring a lawsuit based on the patient bill of rights. Um, So all it means is that the Department of Health can then go to a facility and say, hey, facility, you're supposed to be bound by these the Patient Bill of Rights. You violated it, um, and they can, you know, they can fine them. But generally, the fines are like literally a thousand dollars, tiny. It's just not a motivational amount. And they they can say, hey, you need to change this policy, which is eventually what the Department of Health did to Staten Island University Hospital. They learned of the incident, they reviewed it, they said this is a violation. You're you have to change your policies because. What came out during Renat-Dre's case is that the hospital actually had a policy that they called the Managing Maternal Refusals Policy, um, which, of course, was not known to Renat-Dre, was not made available to people. In fact, many staff people weren't aware that it existed. But this is the policy that guided their decision-making that day when they decided to force Renat-Dre to have a cesarean surgery. And what the Department of Health found is that that policy violates the Patient Bill of Rights. So they were told to fix their policy, and, you know, through an open records request, we, we've been able to see the Department of Health's recommendations and their response, and the hospital did say in their response, okay, we're going to change the policy to one that allows people to refuse. Um, but we haven't actually got our hands yet on that new policy.
0: So if you were to help get past this pregnant person's bill of rights, it, it will only be as effective as any kind of legislation that accompanies it.
1: Exactly. So one of the things that we're recommending is if people bring a bill like that, that it include a right to, to bring a lawsuit if, you, if somebody has violated that, that bill of rights. So the cases that you cited,
0: they're sort of edging towards granting fetuses personhood, but not quite there because they're just granting fetuses sort of weight over the pregnant person. In the South, however, in many states across the country, there are now moves to actually, and they have done so, granted fetuses personhood. What's the significance of those kinds of laws and its impact on pregnant people?
1: I mean, the significance is, is huge. Unfortunately, the impact that we see is more people being punished. So that certainly means charged with crimes, and sometimes, like I said, crimes that were never meant to be used on pregnant people. And it can also mean having your children removed through the child protective services or child welfare process. Um, I think the implications include poorer, poorer health care, for pregnant people, like we've talked about, and a lack of attention to the needs of the pregnant person, um, it certainly has implications for family formation, for artificial reproductive technologies. You know, in some states like Louisiana, for example, um, you can't store embryos, which people often do if they're if they're getting fertility treatment because the embryos in Louisiana are sort of guaranteed an opportunity for life, which creates huge problems for the storage of, of this, this sort of material. Um, so it's just a range. It's a range of problems, including ones that maybe we, we haven't seen yet. I mean, I think the Marche Jones case is a good example. Like, it's going to yet another extreme where somebody who was themselves harmed is then charged with a crime. I mean, the, the tricky thing about pregnancy is that it really is, there is no guaranteed outcome and there is no risk-free course. Nowhere in the world has anybody figured out how to make pregnancy lead all the time to a healthy birth. Um, so that really puts pregnant folks in a vulnerable position if they're expected to sort of guarantee An outcome that nobody, nobody can guarantee. I want to read some statistics regarding
0: common pregnancy outcomes. 10 to 20% of known pregnancies end in miscarriage. Stillbirth affects 1 in 100 pregnancies every year in the United States. Nearly 1 in 4 women in the United States will have an abortion by age 45. And 59% of abortions are obtained by women with children already. So you spoke about maternal um, mortality rates and reproductive health in general. In what ways do both of these things, are, are both maternal and reproductive health at risk based on these laws beyond just the criminalization of the outcomes should something happen to the fetus?
1: I mean, many people I know who, who just experience having a body with these Capacities for reproduction. It's just that there, it's hard to get good information. It's hard to get good care. People I know who've experienced miscarriages feel like, you know, they don't get good care. And I think it's, it's I even think it's just sort of a, an accumulation of factors. I don't necessarily think that there are nurses who intentionally are like, I care more about your fetus than you. But if we put money into research that's focused on creating the best outcomes for fetuses, and don't put money into research about how to best care for pregnant people when they experience a pregnancy loss, then that is just going to create an imbalance in terms of what we know, in terms of how we care for people. So certainly beyond punishing laws, there's just an accumulation of factors that that creates less good care for for the people who experience pregnancy in all of its ranges. And that's the thing. There is a range. Pregnancy isn't just like a one-way path. There's a lot of different things that happen to people. And if we don't attend to and care about and think about and do research on the, the range of things that happen, then only the people who are on that sort of like singular path from pregnancy to healthy birth are going to kind of like get the care that they need. And even then, I'm not sure that they get the care that they need in this country. In what ways would you say, given that most pregnant
0: people are women, that these laws and policies are really there as part of the larger war on women?
1: I, I think there's definitely a, a gender bias at the core of where we are today. Um, I think an overattention on f- fetuses and personhood of fetuses is a more recent strain. But um, I just was reading a report by the United Nations on violence and mistreatment during childbirth. And one of the findings in that report is that all over the world, violence and mistreatment during childbirth has at its core sexism and stereotypes about what it means to be a woman. Certainly, one of those stereotypes is the idea that a woman should be caretaking, that a woman should put other people's needs ahead of her own and above her own, that she should be, you know, essentially subservient to other goals or needs. And so, even just those three things alone certainly helps us get into this position where not Dre's pain is not valued. Where Marche Jones is being in a fight, you know, certainly challenges those gender stereotypes. Like, that's not what a good mother does. A good, a good woman wouldn't even be fighting.
0: <laughs> and I think that your point about that good mother stereotype speaks to the conversation that we had with the authors of, you're doing it wrong about motherhood, the history of motherhood, and this myth that, number one, everyone, all women should be mothers. And, you know, that, this, that being a mother means sacrificing your own well-being. That the pain is part of it and you should endure it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that once the baby is born, the baby means more and the health and the well-being of the baby is more important and yours is subordinate to the baby's.
1: One of the things that we see in a lot of our cases is people go into birth maybe premature, maybe they're just not prepared for it for whatever reason is going on in their lives. They end up giving birth at home, not necessarily planned. And then what they do and how they, res- how they respond to that can be used against them in these legal cases to demonstrate ill intent or criminal intent, criminality. Um, and ultimately, w- w- what I see is just humans respond to that very challenging situation in a lot of different ways, but that if, if how people respond doesn't coincide with prosecutors' ideas of motherhood, then it's seen as suspect, doubtful, and worthy of punishment. You know, even this, this one case, this woman had a stillbirth at home in the middle of the night, wrapped up the remains and waited a few hours to do anything. And this waiting and this this not telling anyone what happened was the basis for her being criminally charged. And I, you know, I actually gave birth at home. That's kind of a rare experience, and it was planned in my case. But it's quite a, you know, it's quite a thing. I'm not sure that, you know... Waiting a few hours—it doesn't even feel like a few hours postpartum. So I just have a lot of empathy for the the folks that we work with who who are faced with situations that are hard situations, <laughs> and deal with them like in the range of ways that that they have the wherewithal to deal with them. But if they don't fit into a certain vision, people have you know, if they're not crying, if they're not emotional, if they're not distraught then that scene is, like, not doing what the right mother would do. I think also
0: this comes up a lot in our conversations with uh, advocates who work in the space of mothers who are victims of domestic violence going through custody where the players in that space, don't understand trauma and recognize trauma symptoms. I think collectively as a society, we yeah. probably don't. And so yeah. people, you know, people can respond to trauma in so many different ways and being still is, seems yes. to me like a normal way. Yes.
1: Yes. Taking time waiting. I mean, exactly. I think there's a lot of commonality and in overlap in, in how people respond to domestic violence situations in that it's complex it's intertwined with your life there's other relationships you know like maybe you don't tell somebody that you had a stillbirth because of your complex familial relationships you know that they'll yell at you you know that they'll be disappointed and it will cost you you know months of ease in your you know and you're just trying to you're just trying to navigate you know day by day and how people navigate these complex situations is, you know, as diverse as humans. I mean, I, and, and also you'll
0: be blamed. You know, we have enough people policing pregnant women's diets and nutrition and whether they're smoking exactly. or drinking and ca- caffeine, etc. Exactly.
1: Which also frustrates me um, because a number of the folks we work with actually do have people in their lives. There's a lot of people there. This case I worked on in Missouri where a woman was charged with, with criminal child abuse. She gave birth to a premature baby at home. Her boyfriend knew. Her boyfriend's friends knew. Her uncle lived with her. None of those people were charged. And I think that, too, underscores the idea that it's really about punishing people who fall outside of the mode of proper motherhood.
0: Another analogous example in the domestic violence side is when you don't leave an abusive relationship, and then child welfare takes your child away. But somehow, for yeah, for failure failure to protect, but somehow the abuser gets visitation and custody later.
1: Yes, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's infuriating. I've I've in a previous job helped get protection orders for people, and you know I've been in the courtroom where the judge is kind of like doubtful and skeptical of the ways that my clients would respond to their their own experience of violence. I just think that is not helpful. (laughs) I want you to
0: share some other examples that might be shocking uh, to our listeners around the criminalization of pregnancy outcomes.
1: So one was Iowa with Christine Taylor. Yeah, she actually fell down a flight of stairs while pregnant and was later arrested for attempted fetal homicide. Um, so that's one good example, too, of, of a specific law that is there to protect the fetus and how that can be used against a pregnant person. Um, other similar situation is cases like this South Carolina case where a 22-year-old woman was eight months pregnant and attempted suicide by jumping out a window. Um, she survived, but uh, was charged with homicide by child abuse. So this intersection of people and their own experience of either, you know, their own struggle in their life leading to suicide, or even just accidents like Christine Taylor in Iowa falling down the stairs, really seems reminiscent of Marche Jones. But again you start to wonder, where does it end? You know, what's the point at which a person can just experience an accident without being considered responsible? Um, You know, in Utah, there was a woman who was refusing a cesarean section. She was pregnant with twins. And one of the twins did not survive. And she was charged because she refused the C-section on this premise that doing that is what, quote-unquote, killed the fetus. There's, yeah, there's a whole range of ways that people are are just experiencing their lives, and then it's considered criminal. Part of
0: the work that
1: NAPW does is educating the public. In what
0: ways do you find that most women and people who are capable of getting pregnant in this country are surprised to learn about the ways in which pregnancy outcomes could be criminalized and how draconian these laws are? Are they coming to this awareness when they become victimized by these laws, or is there some greater awareness as a culture now?
1: I think the awareness is coming slowly. I mean, we were heartened that the New York Times did a full eight-part series on these issues earlier this year. That kind of indicates that there's more and more awareness, but most people, I would say, come to awareness when they've experienced some sort of violence or mistreatment or punishment themselves. Is there anything that we can
0: do to spread the (laughs) news more broadly, so that we can build a coalition of supporters around some of the advocacy work and legal policy change that your organization is engaging in?
1: Well, there is there is a way of thinking that I would like to invite people to consider that I think could help disseminate the information more. What I notice is that some people, when faced with some of this information, their immediate response is to be suspect, to, to doubt The woman involved, and to think, well, there must have been something going on. There must be a reason. Well, if she was punished, it's probably because she did something wrong. Mm. Or, yeah, that sounds bad. I probably wouldn't do that. You know, that just willingness to judge these women, I think, gets in the way of really spreading the word. And really, it's part of the violence that's being perpetrated against folks is that lack of. Trust that doubting that not listening, you know, which is where I think movements like Me Too are really warranted and needed in in this space as well, where it just starts to humanize people. Um, so if we can essentially stop participating in that cultural questioning of women and mothers, that would be a good first step.
0: How? What are some concrete steps that we can do? Because I, I feel like, you know, most recently we just completed a series of episodes on child sexual abuse, which I think probably for most people, unless you're a survivor or you work in that space, they're not going to want to voluntarily listen to those episodes. Which is why we have the epidemic with the Larry Nassers and the the
1: Catholic Church, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, it's more of the same sort of. We don't want to hear about the bad things, we turn away, we just think that's somebody else's problem, that's not my problem. So concrete step, (laughs) I think pick the place where you can begin to hear and, and begin there. Um, for some people, maybe even because of their own past trauma, they won't be able to think about or talk about childhood sexual trauma, but maybe they can think about the violations that happen to pregnant people. Um, ultimately, I think those of us who work in this field do find those interconnections eventually, and the more you listen, I think the more folks will, but just begin, begin. So that's one, one first step. One, so let's let's add another example into the
0: mix then. Uh, I'm going to have links to all of these stories that you shared, hopefully, so that listeners can explore on their own. But there was another example of a woman who wanted to give birth at home in Florida that I wanted you to talk about.
1: Yes, this is one of the first that I learned about that blew my mind. This woman, Tracy Pemberton, had previous cesarean surgeries and during this pregnancy thought, okay, those were rough, this, you know, recovery was hard, I think I can do this, I want to give birth vaginally. And so she made a plan, she got a midwife, she, she was in labor at home, and um, actually w- what happened is she, at one point during the labor, it was, it was hard, she actually went in to the hospital to get fluids, um, hoping to, to give herself some more energy. After she left the hospital, the hospital learned, wait a second, this person's trying to give birth at home after two previous cesarean surgeries. Her doctor got wind of it, ended up calling the police. The police were dispatched to her house to have her forcibly removed from her home and returned to the hospital to be forced to have cesarean surgery. Um, A bedside hearing was held where she was unrepresented, and a judge determined that she could be forced to have this surgery. And in fact, she was taken from her home in a police car and delivered to the hospital and forced to have cesarean surgery.
0: Did did she and her baby turn out okay? Was the baby born okay?
1: The baby was born okay, and a cool thing about Tracy Pemberton's case is that she got pregnant again after this birth and finally did give birth vaginally. Um, You know, part of the argument that the doctors used in this case is because she had previous cesarean surgeries, you know, she she couldn't give birth vaginally, that it would essentially kill the fetus. And so, you know, I'm heartened by her case because she did eventually have vaginal birth, and she and the baby were fine, which happens many times. I mean, the tricky thing... One of, I think, the underlying issues in all of these cases is, is that none of us actually have the magical tool where we can predict outcomes. The, the doctors didn't actually know that a vaginal birth would have been dire for her or for Renat-Dre or in any of these cases. We, that tool does not exist. Um, but it's that, that idea that Whatever it is, whatever the, the sort of idea of the day is, and at these times the idea of the day is if you've had two previous cesarean surgeries, you just don't try to give birth vaginally, even though people prove that it can happen.
0: <laughs> I mean, I feel like there's so much general awareness now from the public that doctors want to take the convenient way out through cesareans. There's been decades of pressure from the medical industry to get women, even in their first birth, to, you know, schedule cesareans. And, and so this seems like this is just part of that practice. And why people would participate is really <clears throat> confusing to me, because, so for example, the, the Florida case... The police had an opportunity to say no, exactly. right? And yet they're willingly going along with it. And similarly with Staten Island University Hospital, I'm guessing there's nurses and other people in the room that had a chance to say no. And if they actually had some access to the the idea that, well, this could be a liability for me to participate, I might be actually harming the baby by doing this and standing up for the overall health outcomes of the baby and the um, mother, then I feel like then things
1: could shift, but everybody's kind of being complicit. Yes. Yes. So much complicitness. Even amongst people's own family members, there's there's another case. An APW wasn't necessarily involved in this one, but this woman was forced to have an episiotomy while she was in labor, and it was actually recorded on video, which is very traumatizing. Um, but I have watched it, and part of what is so traumatizing about it is you can hear in the background her mom saying, "Just do what the doctor says." So it's moms, it's spouses, it's siblings. There's so many people participating in this idea of just do what you're told, just be a good mom. Um, okay, you know, my boss told me to pick this pregnant woman up and take her to the hospital, so I guess I'll do it. Um, but actually, there are many opportunities where individuals, despite the complexity of the systems that we're working in the criminal justice system, the healthcare system can make individual decisions that. That can minimize these harms, minimize these human rights violations, um, but it is hard. You know, as humans, we're you know we're social animals. We're kind of like just cognitively tend to go with go with the group. Um, it takes courage to not, and it takes also I think some sort of foundation. And what I want people to know is that there is an alternate foundation and that alternate foundation is human rights it is the idea that we don't as a matter of principle and because we believe in liberty we do value the individual bodies you know that people occupy we we tend to there i mean there's this is deeply deeply valued in US law in international human rights law. This is a this is a strong clear value. This is not ambiguous. Again that that United Nations document I just read, it's very clear. Informed consent is a human right. We don't we don't go into people's bodies without their permission. Because that's from there many many harms flow. We 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 keep that boundary because it's good for humans, it's good for society. And so I think when people feel and have a counter-narrative that they can go against the group, but in order to honor a higher principle, maybe that can help them have that courage. And again, healthcare providers, yes, it's true. Informed consent is a human right. You can protect it.
0: I like the analogy that I've heard people use where you take the gender out of it. So if you had someone, you know, everybody has two kidneys were born in theory, uh, and you have someone with kidney failure, and if you have two healthy kidneys and you can live with one, you need informed consent to donate your kidney to the person okay. who's gonna die. We're not gonna just put- yeah,
1: take same. you out of your house and bring you to the hospital and just say, hey, this person needs your kidney. You have no say in it. This is very, very clearly established, strong principles in the law. And of course, you know, what I find is. When it comes to pregnancy, people are not quite willing to accept that kidney analogy because it's like, but it's different. And I'm okay with the fact that it's different. We can acknowledge the fact that it's different. For me, even the fact that it's different, maybe even because it's different, we want to honor the integrity of that pregnant person's body because to, a violation at that juncture has generational implications. We want we want to we want to begin to communicate our value of liberty and protection of individual self determination right from the beginning. So of course we should do it at pregnancy. Of course. And
0: and and some of our other guests in the past who whose expertise is around pregnancy and breastfeeding they've talked about sort of pregnancy culture where people seem to have a right to want to touch the pregnant person's body, right? The belly, um, kind of like white people feel like it's okay to touch a black person's hair, right? right. And, and so just like the body of the pregnant person belongs to all of us, and yeah. we all get to share. And then once the baby is born, we get to make decisions and judgment around whether they're breastfeeding in public.
1: Right. If they're doing it right, they'll be full of judgments about how the baby's wrapped or not wrapped or dressed or not dressed or have booties or hats or whatever. Yeah. I think there's probably analogy, too, in the domestic violence realm in terms of the importance of protecting that, that person in the family system, that kids, kids don't benefit by having a parent who is tormented. You know, kids don't benefit by punishing that person for how they're responding to their situation. Similarly, you know, new infants don't benefit by having a traumatized parent. Yeah, and and that actually was what I wanted to bring
0: up as another case. So when we talk about reproductive rights and reproductive justice in my social media and my sort of philosophy, I also include the the autonomy for people to have a healthy relationship with their child and to have a relationship with their child that's part of reproductive rights and justice and not to have to parent with an abuser Mm -hmm. as an example and so I know that NAPW had worked on years ago the case um, representing Sarah McKenna who was a uh, in a relationship with the Olympic skier Bodie Miller and and so for me that was a big case that really influenced a lot of people in my network because my understanding was was in California when she met him and then decided to move to New York to attend college and take care of herself and the judge in New York who i actually believe i appeared in front of called her move quote unquote irresponsible and reprehensible because and accused her of trying to of a forum shop, and so just and I I, I know later that you know, the outcome was positive for her, but it took years. Yeah, um, and so the idea that um, a putative father gets to decide where you, as a pregnant woman, live or move, and whether you even have a right to move in space <laughs>
1: and time. I think is very Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, exactly. It gets to this same principle. We honor the liberty of individuals because, I mean, if you just think it through, these kinds of things are possible then. And what we know is that women experience this kind of uh, blurring of those boundaries of liberty much more than men. And it's just, again, I think, based on these stereotypical ideas. As a queer person, I feel we have a lot to offer <laughs> um, in terms of breaking stereotypes in family making and expectations about what certain roles need to be. Um, there's, there's an author who recently wrote or was having published a law review, which I'll send you, suggesting that the that we, should ha- we should develop a sort of cultural scheme whereby the pregnant person is the one who gets to determine who the co-parents are. With the idea being exactly that, if it's not the, co- if it's not the pregnant person who gets to, d- to decide, then there's the risk and possibility that people like abusers could have control over that body and that person and their decision making. I think it makes a lot more sense to, to sort of just, you know, it's pragmatic, it's logical, it's, I think it's fair and decent to, to honor that pregnant person's, yeah, ability to move and make decisions about what's going to be best. Um, and I say that as a person who is a parent to a, a kiddo who I did not give birth to, I was not pregnant with. And I know the vulnerability and risk, you know, on the, on the other side for being that person who's not in the body and who doesn't have that sort of, like, access. But I, th- I think even so, that's, that's the best way to honor humans.
0: For me, I totally agree. And when you bring in gender and you bring in men, <laughs> somehow in policy, in practice— Their rights are elevated. And there's a double standard when it comes to what's allowable. If they're neglectful in their parenting or abusive in their parenting, well, that's whatever. That's okay. And it's excused. And if a a woman is protecting her child in an abusive relationship, somehow, you know, she's not believed and punished for just speaking out. And so just. I remember when I—well, this is a cautionary tale and I think also very important for people to know—is that a lot of abusers now, the intersection of reproductive rights and domestic violence is such that they have been using this disinformation campaign of calling survivors of domestic violence alienating, so to speak, and using that against them. And so for me, when I was pregnant and I left my abuser— just leaving and not having contact with him i was called alienating because he did, he needed to have a right to know what my health was and what the health of my baby was during that three you know month period before i gave birth and it was used against me for not having contact with him during my pregnancy mm. you know so i think that this is very important that people realize that it goes beyond what we've been talking about and it's also includes when you are pregnant in many situations, and you want to have a child and have to be able to parent safely. That should be also the, it right. added to the vernacular of what reproductive justice means.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I yeah, I think it. I think it comes down to also sort of policing people's sexuality and decision making that people make in terms of when they have sex with whom they have sex there's this idea that i think i see more often applied to to women that oh if you're if you get pregnant it was because you made some bad choice about who to have sex with especially if you're pregnant and then don't want to parent with that person when in fact i mean men make bad choices about who they have sex with all the time but it's not punished or it's not you know culturally validated to just determine their choices based on a sexual act, a sexual decision.
0: I'd like to turn to more positive <laughs> success stories, hopefully. Um, can you share with us NAPW's successes with regard to legal advocacy and some of the work that you've been doing around changing policy and public education?
1: I mean, I would start by saying that success does happen. We, we do, like I've said Many of these principles are very well established in the law. A lot of times when we get involved in a case, eventually we win. But, but like you said, it can take years, which is the, the downside. But on, in many of these cases, charges eventually are dismissed. In Marsha Jones's case, um, through advocacy and pressure, we got the prosecutor to dismiss those charges. That's one of the best case scenarios when we can, even before there's a case, where we can intervene and just help those prosecutors make those decisions like we talked about. They can, they can make a choice. And um, just dropping the charges is one of the choices that, that we do see being made. Your organization
0: was also instrumental in helping New York State pass the Reproductive Health Act earlier this year.
1: Yes, yes. Many, many organizations were involved in that long-term effort. But I think that is one of the the legislative victories that we've seen in New York. But I think just the fact that New York passed this law will make it more possible for other states as well. And that should not be dismissed as a victory. Um, One of the provisions in New York state law that is changed now because of the Reproductive Health Act was used in renat Dre's case by a judge to say, "Well, maybe it was okay for the doctors to force you to have cesarean surgery since since New York State does criminalize abortion." So by getting rid of that, you know, legal line of thinking, it it makes it more possible for folks like Renate Dre to get redress. Um, and we are working on other policy issues across the country, including in New York like I mentioned, this potential pregnant person's bill of rights. Um, We work at the federal level to improve um, child welfare policies. And um, I think a big area of success has been in getting the word out that these kind of cases happen and that as a society, we can make different choices.
0: At the end of every
1: conversation,
0: I ask a series of questions called the Engendered Questionnaire that I've adapted from inside their actor's studio. Uh, So the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: I see, truly, maybe it's an overstatement, but I see the future of humanity as being at stake. You know, truly even in my mind I kind of see a branching pathway and we can kinda of go to the left or we can go to the right. And I think if we go to the left, it, it, it is not an exaggeration to say that it looks like the handmaid's tale. And if we go to the right, I think we can really see the expansion of humanity to to really honor what is best about humans. In terms of family making, in terms of um, relationship having, in terms of finding that balance between the individual and, and community. I think we can find that, and I think that's what's at stake. What gives you hope? The strength of the women that we work with absolutely gives me hope. I mean, incredible, incredible strength and resilience. The capacity of humans to, to come back and and. Be strong and be open hearted, even in the face of extreme trauma. That's an incredible power and human resource. And the fact that we've got that, we've got that, gives me a lot of hope. And
0: final question What can we do more of, less of, start, or stop to end gender based violence and oppression?
1: We can stop judging moms. We can do more of seeing how honoring the individual decision-making of pregnant people is good, is good for pregnant people, is good for their families. And we can do more of looking, looking at our own lives and seeing where we're being complicit and, you know, analyzing that, taking a good, hard, careful look at Choices that we're making on a daily basis and just finding like one or two places that we can make a different choice.
0: Thank you for joining us, Indra. It was a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It QA, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It QA for free at QNA. Dot dot com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.